All right, church family, we are in a series, How to Survive the Holidays, and uh, the big thing behind this whole series is just kind of talking about the reality that what happens during the holidays and the stress that happens during the holidays that makes it difficult to keep Jesus at the center uh, is not new and it's not particular to the holidays. That is to say, almost all the stressors that we experience in this season are stressors that exist continually throughout all seasons. Uh, We are busy, and holidays just make it busier. We are usually kind of already live uh, outside of our means or with very little financial margin. The holidays just compound that. We already have strained relationships, but the holidays just force us to interact with people that perhaps for most of the year you can spend avoiding. And so that's to say that the holidays don't create new problems. They just expose existing problems as they kind of get compounded. And so if we can learn to, in these kind of more stressful, chaotic times, learn the counterweight of how God calls us to go to him and find rest in him, then what really we begin to see is that, man, this becomes a lot more manageable throughout all of life. Uh, and today we're going to talk about something that initially, I, kinda, I, I didn't think I wanted to talk about this, but uh, to tell you how sermons kind of work for me, if, if you imagine you've got a subject or you're working through a text, and the Bible is infinitely complex, it's infinitely interesting, so many places and things that you could say and talk about. And so I had a couple of sermons that I was kind of like pinging around in my mind, but so I've never shopped for a wedding dress, that's going to surprise you, but they say it, it, it's kind of like you just, you put it on and it's just like, it just fits, right? Like, it just, like, you're like, that's it. That's the one. That's the thing. And so for me with sermons, the reason I say this is because sometimes when I'm, like, processing and thinking, okay, which one? I'm thinking about kind of where we are as, a, you know, kind of the season of, of the year or the season of life or where our church is and what would be good. And I just, just didn't feel like it fit. And then Wednesday night, I was just, it was late, and I was thinking and praying about it. And all of a sudden, I just felt like God saying, you know, I, I want you to talk about loss. And I want you to talk about loss specifically um, this weekend. And I sort of started thinking, and I was like, okay, God, if you want me to do that, I will, but I don't even know what I'm going to say. And, and I don't know if you've ever had this before, but all of a sudden you just kind of like say, okay, God, I will if you want me to. And all of a sudden, all the puzzle pieces start coming together. And so that's somewhat of this sermon. And I want to say, kind of to start off with, this isn't actually the first time I've given this sermon. This sermon has a story to it. And I'll tell you a little bit more about the end, because the first time I gave it was in July of 2008. And the starting point for this sermon is to acknowledge just loss. Loss. Loss, it, it happens. And when I say loss, most of our immediate thoughts and attention go to a person that we've lost. And that is obviously a massive part of what we talk about in loss, and especially in this season. But to be honest and to be fair, it's, it's, a, it's a lot more, I don't know, there's a lot more width than that. For some of us, it's, it, it is loss. It's that somebody... Somebody who is in your life, someone who was in your life, is no longer in your life. And this is the first time or the second time, maybe the third time that you're coming around. And what makes Christmas time oftentimes so special, what makes these holiday seasons so special, is the fact that you have traditions. You've always done the same thing with the same people. And maybe for the, for the very first time, you go to do the same things with the same people, but that one person that was incredibly meaningful isn't there. And it matters and it's triggering. But for some of us, it's not so much that A person's not there. It's that at this point in this season, we're forced to interact with the loss of something else, the loss of maybe the the loss of a hope and a dream of what I thought my life was going to look like. Because at this point in time, I thought I would have somebody that I was engaged to. I thought that I would have somebody who I was married to. I thought that there would be someone. At this point in my life, I thought I would have a family. For some of us, it's at this point in life, 
I felt like my career was going to be headed in this, uh, this direction, in this trajectory, and I thought I was going to have a house at this point, or I thought I was going to have at least a car at this point. I, mean, I thought at least I was going to have employment at this point. But you don't. Sometimes for parents, and I thought my kid was going to be on their own at this point, and I thought they were going to be doing great at this point, and they're not. And the weird thing about the holidays is that oftentimes the smallest things can be the most triggering things. After the first sermon when we were talking about this, when I was talking about this, and I was talking about how, how if we live life and there's a normal amount of stress, and if, if, if we kind of live, if you take this picture of a phone booth and, and, and water is stress, we kind of live with the stress up here, and when the holidays come, it just kind of goes over our head, and how there's different things that trigger that thing to go over our head. And afterwards, I have this, this wonderful, beautiful text um, from our friend Beth Jackson, who, if you know Beth and you know her family, and there's wonderful family, um, Jimbo Jackson, uh, an amazing man. We love Jimbo, served our city so well, served our students and school systems so well, who passed away. And she sent me a picture of this. She said, this isn't a phone booth. She said, but this is my phone booth. And she just went to open a box, and she found a stocking. And she saw that. And it's not like six months in after having lost your husband, you just, you're, you're good now, but, but you kind of continue to go on through life, and then all of a sudden you just go to do your thing, and you just go to put the things up, and, and all of a sudden this thing is a thing that you open up, and, and you see it, and it's just overwhelming. And the problem really with loss, and really just suffering in general, is that we look at it and it just, if we're being really truthful, it doesn't make sense. And maybe you're here, and, and this is kind of your hesitancy with God. This doesn't make sense because it seems like the, the people who do well are oftentimes the people who suffer the most, and it seems like sometimes the people who do the worst are oftentimes the most blessed. You look and you say, okay, well, I... I saw this person, they were, my, they were my parents, they were my kids, they were, they, were, they, were, they were just a good person in our community, and it seems like tragedy hit them, but then you see all these people who just seem like they do so much stuff wrong and so much negativity and so much bitterness, and it seems like their, their negativity and bitterness and ruthlessness oftentimes is the key to their success, and it just seems like they're so blessed, and so you look at it and you say, okay, God, where are you? What, what's going on? And this is a context that's, it's always been the case. There's a really fascinating story about a man named Horatio Spafford. Horatio was born in the 1820s. He was, lived in Chicago, was a lawyer, knew Jesus, was a massive part of his, his local church, had a son, four daughters, tons of real estate in the Chicago area, and was friends, actually, with um, this guy we would know now as D.L. Moody or Dwight Moody who was at the time in Europe and he was preaching and teaching and just phenomenally influential for the kingdom of God and so Spafford Horatio Spafford was was just a, 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 a someone who loved God and I, I use him as this example because sometimes it's easy to talk about somebody who's kind of like a little bit distant well his son who was four years old died of scarlet fever 
His family was reeling from that. And then there was this massive Chicago fire that broke out a few months later, destroyed his home and all of the properties that they had, all of his wealth, all of his investments. It's now basically gone. And so Horatio and his family, I mean, they're just in such, they, they just like said, we just need to, we need to go somewhere for a little bit, be around something else, some other people, a little bit better of a positive influence, just different context. And so they decide that they're going to go visit their friend D.L. Moody, who was preaching over in Europe. And as they get on the boat, or they're about to get on the boat, Horatio hears word that something's happening with his business, this big deal that he has, and he needs to stick around. And so he stays back while his family goes, says, I'm going to be there in a few days. I'll leave a few days after you. Well, a couple of days later, he gets word back that the ship that his family was on, his four daughters and his wife were on, collided with another ship, and it sunk. And then he gets a telegraph two days later from his wife that said, I alone am safe. In a matter of days, months, he lost everything. He had his wife, but I mean, come on, just like a man, like actually putting ourselves in that situation is the infuriating part. Because you look at it and you see this good God in this person who seems like he's done a lot of stuff right, this person who seems like, like, like you were a part of your church, you were generous, you were, you know, kingdom focused, you, you had a good family and you, you made wise, and, I, mean, I mean, why is this horrific thing happening? And so sometimes, again, we look at that and we say, okay, now how does a loving God exist in that context? What I love about the Bible is the Bible's honest. It never once denies the fact that the righteous suffer. In fact, there's an entire book of it. If you got your Bible, there's this book called Job, which for the longest time when I was a kid, I always thought it was like job. I'm like, why do we need a freaking entire book of the Bible about getting a job? I think we already get that one. So Job is in the Bible, and Job was a man at approximately chronologically the time of uh, Genesis, kind of towards the latter part of Genesis, is when, we, was when Job probably drops into the chronology of the Old Testament. Job, Job had a ton of stuff, and Job feared the Lord. And the book of Job is all about this incredibly righteous person going through what felt to him like a hell on earth and the spiritual wrestlings back and forth of that. Job chapter 1, give you a little context for Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. They were born to him, Seven sons and three daughters, which, just want to pause, I like that ratio, by the way. If you have a daughter, you're like, I'm going to need two sons to every one daughter to protect them, and I'm going to need a floater for the seventh, just in case somebody's sick. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkey, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. He says, okay, so you want to know who the wealthiest dude on the block is in all of the East? This is like the Jeff Bezos, but it's like if Jeff Bezos, like everything in his life was for God, because the very next thing we're going to find out about him was not only was he materially wealthy, but he had extraordinary reverence and deference and respect in relationship with God. It says, his sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And this was kind of like a, 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 a festival of feasts or, or kind of like a week of festivals and whatnot. And when the day of feasts had run their course, oh, I'm sorry, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. 
when the day of feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them. He would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, the words that every parent has said before, it may be that my children have sinned. I don't know how many parents have ever felt like that. I'm like, it's not a maybe. They have sinned for sure, right? So Job looks at him and says, okay, God, I don't even know what happened, and I know this isn't even me, but God, I'm going to say this, that, that I'm going to do this offering out of a clear sign of re- deference and respect and relationship that I know that I've sinned, so I'm going to do my offerings, but my kids, who knows, and so I'm just going to be sure, sure double-check this box and make sure that they're good too. Uh, and so it, says, it ends by saying, thus Job did continuously. So constantly, constantly, Job was saying, God, it's all about you. God, it's all about you. God, what do you want me to do? I'll do it. God, where do you want me to go? I'll go. God, and, 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 and he just continued to be blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed. And then there was this interaction right after this where a, a really fascinating, actually, study, if you ever want to do it, where, where Satan interacts with God. God says, basically, where you been? And he says, well, I've been going to and forth, you know, to and fro throughout all the earth. He says, have you considered Job? He said, Yeah. But there's no way Job's going to deny you, God. I mean, look at how much he has. Look at how wealthy he is. Look at how propped up he has. Look at how much you have hooked him up. Don't you know that he would never do anything to turn from you? Because God, you have given him so much. And here's the underlying premise behind that. God, the only reason that he actually does what you say and and, and, and lives for you is because of how you've blessed him. He doesn't actually love you, God. He just loves what you've done for him, God. And so I want you to know that if you were to take that stuff away, he'd deny you. So God said, just don't touch his health. And I'm telling you, he's not going to deny me. So we get the fallout of what happens in verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabines fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So they've killed all those, they killed all the livestock, and while he was still speaking, there came another and said, the, uh, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while that's happening, while he's still talking, he sees dude number three coming, and it says, there came another, the Chaldeans formed three groups, made a raid on the camels and took them, struck down the servants of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, so number four comes up, at this point, Joe's got to be like, good grief. I mean, this wasn't like Horatio where there's like a span of days or a span of weeks or a span of months before this tragedy. It was just one after the next, after the next, after the next. And and, and probably not to this extent, but I feel like we've all experienced some of that. Where when tragedy hits, when suffering hits, all of a sudden it's one after the next, after the next. And it just feels like it's wave after wave after wave that just roll over us. Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So it's Job and his wife and the four servants that escaped. And in a matter of moments, everything changed. So Job arose and tore his robe 
shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshiped and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And it's a beautiful place to get to. But there was more to the story. Similar interaction would happen. God and Satan. Satan would look and God would say, well, you can, you, can, you can harm his physical body, just don't kill him. And so he would be inflicted with these, these boils, these wounds that he would probably use the, you know, oftentimes when he had this, it would be, it would be you know, head to toe and it would be scraping with pottery to try to get a little bit of comfort from this physical, this physical just, just agonizing, debilitating pain. To the point where his wife looks at him and says, curse God and die. That would be better. I've seen where you are and I've seen the suffering that you've gone through. I've seen how much you did. I've seen how much you've done for God. And now God's done all this to you. He says, curse God and die. And what I love about Job is Job says this thing back to her. Where he basically says, he says, he says, shall God, shall I only take the good and not also the bad, good or bad? He says, blessed be the name of the Lord. And that's good, but it's almost like a little bit too nice and too kind because you read that and it's like, oh, well, no one actually has that reaction. Sometimes that's our, our innate, immediate reaction. But don't be kid or fooled about this. Job was in immense grief and pain. The very next chapter, what happens? His friends see him. They see him and they, well, first they walk up and they see him and they say, is that, is that Job? They don't even recognize him because he's in such distress about this. They sit down and for seven days they say nothing. They just, they see their friend, they see him in sackcloth, ashes, head shaved, in mourning, huge signs of grieving, and they just sit there with their friend. And I just want to pause and say this, that that the truth is, is that oftentimes when tragedy hits, when suffering is in the midst of, we want to offer some type of a really, just a, a thin spiritual solution to a really thick, immense spiritual problem. And we just say, hey, they're in a better place. Neat. That's not helpful. I already knew that. It's not like, oh man, I forgot about heaven. No, I'm saying I miss my parents being at this dinner that we have every year on Christmas. And that's okay. And they just sat with him. Sometimes the most empathetic thing that you can do for somebody going through something incredibly, not even incredibly difficult, but just difficult, it's just, it's just to sit with them. Well, then Job begins to grieve and he begins to process. And he basically says, cursed is the day that I was born. God, I feel so much pain. I wish I had never even been born. Well, it creates a continual interaction between Job and his friends where his friends continually say, Job, you've obviously done something wrong. I mean, no one, no one, God doesn't do this to anybody. Like, like, the, like God works in such a way that if you do bad, bad is done to you. If you do good, God does good to you. And so, Job, we're looking at you. A lot of bad has been done. And so, Job, what did you do wrong? And Job's sitting there saying, I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. Are you kidding me? I didn't do anything wrong. Like, I don't know why. In fact, this is Job's consistent request. I wish God were here so that I could question him and say, God, why did this happen? 
And if we're being honest, that's how we feel. Because I wish God was here. Because I don't know why this happened. And you look at the reality of your life, and, and be honest, it feels like, and it probably is true, that people who are way worse have gotten much better. And you have been much better, better and it feels like you've gotten way worse. And there's frustration in that. There's anger in that. There's disappointment in that. And so Job, for 35 chapters, goes back and forth with his friends. Back and forth. Back and forth. You did something wrong. I wish I could question God. You did something wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. I wish I could talk to God about this. And in verse 38, or chapter 38, God speaks. For 35 chapters, it felt like God was absent, frankly. It felt like God wasn't there, frankly. And then God speaks. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, well, let me pause. You can already see what he said, but let me just pause and say this. If you're going through this right now, this can be a really difficult concept to grasp when you're in the middle. When you're in the middle of grieving and mourning. In fact, if you're not going through that and you're already kind of hearing your categorical, like, well, I'm not really going through a lot, so this is interesting information, but it doesn't really apply to me. The better you grasp this now, the better you will be equipped to go deal with grief and loss later because every single one of us will deal with it. To be frank, the only ones of us who will not deal with it are the ones who will be lost before we have something to deal with. All of us. It's a part of the human experience. But this answer that God gives is not necessarily the most emotionally satisfying answer. My question is not, is it satisfying? It's just, is it true? The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, he said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. In other words, Job, who is this that's questioning me without acknowledging the fact that I'm God and perhaps there's an information gap? He says, dress for action like a man. Now, what he actually says in that is, gird your loins, Job, like a man. In other words, you have been questioning me. You have been wondering things to me. He says, I will question you, and you make it known to me. In other words, Job, I got some answers for your questions, but before I answer your questions, Job, let me ask you some questions. Let me just phrase this, because, Job, I don't want you to rush into asking me questions without you ask, realizing who is the one that you're asking these questions to. So, Job, let me ask you a question. As you have been questioning my goodness, you have been questioning my judgment you have our judgment you've been questioning my fairness you have been questioning me and why this has been done perhaps there's something about me that you don't know verse four where were you when i laid the foundations of the earth it's like god i'm talking about my loss he says i know you're talking about your loss but i want you to remember that you're talking to someone who is over all things in control of all things and perhaps there's some bigness of god that helps to bring your 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 suffering into perspective Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched the line upon it? Where were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? He says, Job, where were you? Where were you? Like, like Job, 
Where were you when the stars, and where were you with the sky, and where were you with the morning song? Or who shut the seas with its doors, bursting forth from the womb? When I made clouds its garments, and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it, and set bars and doors, and said, Thus far you shall come, and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. In other words, Job, where were you? Where were you? Job, perhaps, perhaps you're questioning me of why this is happening. And Job, this is not to minimize your pain, but this is just to maximize the awareness of God that perhaps you trying to look at me and saying, God, like, like it doesn't seem like this is fair. It doesn't seem like this makes sense. It doesn't seem like this is reasonable. We all know that when information gaps happen, it causes a lack of perspective. It's like you go and you have a five-year-old that's looking at a rocket that's about to be launched into outer space, and he's talking to a, a, a rocket scientist, and the kid looks at him and says, nope, that's never going to happen. That's way too heavy. It's not like the, the scientist says, okay, well, let me explain propulsion to you. That this is, again, not to minimize and say, no, the, the, the suffering is not there. It's just to say, okay, when we look and we start to question God in the middle of that, maybe what we actually need is a perspective shift on God. Because we begin to shrink God down to the size of our problems. And God's saying, were you there when I hung the stars in the sky? Were you there when I said, this is what a day is? Were you there when I said, earth, you can go this far, you know, land, you can go this far, the, you know, the skies, you can go this far? Like, like, were you there when that happened? Well, of course not. So, Job, I know this is difficult. I know this is difficult. But perhaps what shifts your problem is not your problem. Perhaps what shifts your problem is your perspective of God. Because if we have a very small view of God then the truth is, is it makes it very, very difficult to trust him in our suffering. Because ultimately we feel like he's not there and he's not in control. God ends his discourse to Job and the Lord said to Job, his initial discourse at least, the Lord said to Job, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God let him answer it. And Job answered the Lord and said, now look at the shift of Job for the first 35 chapters of his back and forth. It was, it was but God, but God, and I wish I could talk to God, and I wish God would answer me on this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? In other words, God, everything inside of me before wanted to say how unfair this was and how I don't understand why you would do that. And, and now I see this, and, and, and truthfully, in Job's life, nothing had changed at this point. Everything was still gone. Everything was still lost. He was probably still in the same amount of physical pain. The thing that shifted inside of Job was not his situation, his context, his problems. It was his view of God. He says, I now see that you are God. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed in other words. God, I get it. I get it. You're massive. You're huge. And God, I know that you are the one that's in control. And God, I know that this is really difficult for me right now, but I know that you're in control. And what we like to try to think is that those two things can't go together. 
But the truth of Scripture is they are inextricably linked. That the massiveness of God, the glory of God, the goodness of God is all interwoven in the presence of people's, our suffering. They are not mutually exclusive. They're inextricably linked together. The Lord answered Job of the world, worldman and said, not, I said, dress for action. In other words, again, gird your loins like a man. I will question you. And you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God and can you thunder with a voice like his? What's interesting is that most people will say that chapter 40, verse 8, and he says, are you going to try to make me in the wrong so that you look in the right? Is the central problem of the book of Job. Job viewed God as I'm going to do right and you're going to bless me. And so God, I have done right and I haven't been blessed. So I feel like you're not good. Here's God's point. Job, I love you. Nobody's good. I love you. And this is why the gospel's important. Because what we actually believe is that we've all sinned. We have all rebelled against God over and over and over again. We've all known the good that we ought to do and not done it. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And when we feel like God owes us, it's actually a version of works-based righteousness. Because the truth of the gospel is God. What, what, what we are owed, what we deserve, is eternal separation from God. That's why I said, but God so loved the world that he gave his son. Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stand. In other words, if you can do this, do this. Hide them all in dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. In other words, Job, I know, I know this is hurtful. I know this is painful, but I want you to know that, God, that Job, I am God. I am in control and I am massive. And let's be honest, when we're in the middle of suffering, when we're in the middle of, of grief, most of what we want to know is, God, are you there and do you care? Are you there and are you in control? I think we're actually at a benefit over Job. Because Job just had to trust God. He just had to say, okay, God, I don't know it. I don't get it. I don't even really have a context. I don't have a framework for this. But God, I trust you. Because God, if you are that big, I trust you. If you are that massive, and God, I know that you know because you're talking to me, then I trust you. I think we're at a benefit because we now live in the wake of the cross of Jesus. In other words, if we look at it and say, how can a loving God allow the righteous to suffer? We would also look at a loving God that we celebrate in this season that God sent his one and only son, perfect son, to suffer for us, which means two things. Number one, if God would not withhold suffering from his son, we cannot expect that he would withhold suffering from us. If he would allow Jesus to go through it, he's not like, I'll allow Jesus, but then he's too valuable. 
I mean, have you heard him on a Sunday? Every once in a while, he gets soft. And then loud, and people say, wow. Oh, of course he would. Of course he would. But here's the other thing. In a view of the bigness of God, the greatness of God, the grandeur of God, the glory of God, the fact that I have sinned and I have, I have over and over turned my back on God and know the good that I ought to do and not done it, know the good that I ought not do and done the evil that I, that I know I ought not do. And in the middle of that, God would, God would love me. God would suffer. But if he's that big and I can expect suffering, since he suffered for me, I can trust him. In other words, if a massive God would not withhold suffering from his son, I can expect it. But if his son would suffer for me, that means I can trust him in the midst of my suffering. And I know, again, if you're in the middle of that, you're not walking away thinking, ooh, I feel better now. My goal is not to make you feel better. It's just to let you know that you are in company of other sufferers who look and acknowledge it and trust God in the process of it. The story of Horatio that just so beautifully mirrors the story of Job. And I love how both of them, Job a couple different times says, God gives and God takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. So as Horatio is drive our, you know, floating on a boat to go meet his wife. They get to the point where the captain knows this is about where the boat sank, and this is, he, he knows below right now is it's where my kids are. And he spends time out there, and he prays, and he goes into his cabin and writes the words, of this famous hymn that you have probably sung at some point in your life. And it starts off, when peace like a river attendeth my way. And when sorrows like sea billows, they just feel like they're rolling over me. He says, whatever my life, God, whatever I have, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. I started off by telling you this is not the first time I've given this sermon. When I was a youth pastor at Deer Lake United Methodist Church, we were doing a three summers journey through the Old Testament. Each week we would take a different book or a different section or a different chapter or whatever it was. And I was a youth pastor, so they didn't let us speak very often because we kind of needed like a hot mic filter to kind of blank us out when we said wild stuff, heretical stuff, you know. And I remember... I got this one particular text. I guess I think that they were just like, oh, here's, here's an unfun sermon that everybody doesn't want to do on Job. Let's let Ben do it. So I was preparing, I was preparing, I was saying, okay, God, what do I say? Because I feel like this, like, like the way God answered, God doesn't even like say 
back to Job. God doesn't even say, Job, oh, by the way, here's, here, here's why, which I think is an interesting point, by the way, because if you think about it, God never actually answers Job and says, this is why, but God allowed Job to go through exactly only the limitations of what he had to go through to, to validate and substantiate that his faith was actually his faith that wasn't a faith that's propped up because of the fact that he has all this stuff. And if at any point in time, God would have said to Job, Job, by the way, the reason that you're doing this is because I want to show people for thousands of years going forward that there is a model that suffering and the presence of God can coexist together. In fact, they are inextricably linked that in the presence of suffering is the presence of God, but we can trust God because of the greatness of God, the bigness of God, the grandeur of God, because God suffered and God suffered for us so we can trust him. If he would have said that, you know what would have happened? He would have been propped up in such a way that he would have validated the entire thing that Satan said was the problem, which is simply that the only reason he trusts you is because you make his name great. God fundamentally and functionally could not have answered that question. That's kind of a different point, but actually the same point. But here's why I say all that. I'm preparing for this sermon. And I'm thinking, God is massive, and God suffered, and we can trust him. God is massive, God suffered, and we can trust him. And I'm just preparing for it over and over in my mind. And it's like the second time I've ever preached on a Sunday morning, and I'm kind of nervous, and my, my family's going to be there. And so sure enough, the 9 o'clock service rolls around, and I, I give this sermon, and my dad is there in the audience. And, and you know, he's from, he, he was, uh, we were at the Methodist church. He's from an Episcopal church. It's very different stylistically from what he was used to. But, you know, he, he sat there in and, and that. 11 o'clock service came around. My mom was there. My sister was there. We had plans to go to lunch, to go to Ruby Tuesdays on Capitol Circle afterwards. And I just over and over just preaching my heart out and saying, just kind of having empathy and saying, who's in the room right now? Who's in the room right now? That just needs to hear. Man, in the presence of all this, it's not that, oh, they're in a better place. It's not like, oh, it's going to be okay. It's that, no, 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 this is really difficult. This is really hurtful. This is really painful. But I want you to know that there is a massive God who suffered, and not just suffered, but suffered for you. He loves you. You can trust him. And I know it's difficult. I know it's difficult, but you can trust him. 11 o'clock service, my mom sits through it. My sister sits through it. Get done, and it was, you know, this, this, this kind of beautiful ending to the service. And we go to lunch after. Little did I know the sermon that I had been preparing for and preaching, God had been preparing and preaching to me. We sat at lunch after the very first time I gave this sermon on Job. My mom said, my cancer's back, and I have six months to live. You know what this sermon didn't do? It didn't make it hurt less. I cried. I went home that afternoon. We need to have somebody else fill in for me at youth group because I was, I mean, I love my mom. But I also knew but there was this weirdly divine intermixing of God saying, I hate this and this hurts and this is awful. But God, you are big and you suffered and I trust you. And God, I don't want to go through this, but you are big and this is awful and I trust you. My mom didn't have a lot of infrastructure around her, so just her and I, the two of us, I mean, we went, we went to doctor's appointments with her. We flew out to um, Texas. We went to MD Anderson to try to do clinical trials, all this kind of stuff, and there was nothing. I remember holding my mom's hand as she's crying and saying, I just want to live, I just want to live. And I remember thinking, God, this is awful. And I trust you. And sure enough, a couple days after Christmas, 
December 30th, 2008, almost six months to the day, she passed away. The reason I tell you that story is because this isn't something that I say from an emotionally removed place that sounds a little bit, you know, distant. And I say, you should just trust. This is me saying, I need this too. God knew I needed this. So he had this ingrained in my mind. God knew I knew this. We had a grain in my heart. God knew my entire family knew this, so he had me preach it over and over. And God, I had no clue how much I would need that in those coming days, those coming weeks and months, and in the years after. I don't say this as someone who's telling you what to do. I'm saying this as someone who has, this has been the life source in my sense of suffering and tragedy. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're like me. I got one parent left. Grandparents, other parent. I love them. And it's hard. Just know that God is massive. In this massive God suffered. And so will we. But because of the fact that this massive God who hung the stars in the sky and told the ocean and the land and the sky, you can only go this far suffered for me, and we can trust him. So here's how we're going to end our service together today. A little bit of a progressive ending. The first thing I want to do is we're going to have um, Alex and Chelsea come back out. And I just thought, man, I, for those of us in the room who you're in the middle of this right now, I don't want to go to the next part of the service. I don't want to go to the end of the service. I don't want to conclude this without us just spending a little time processing and just acknowledging God, this hurts, but I know that you're here. God, this hurts, and I know that you're real. God, this hurts, and I know that you're massive. And so we're going to sing, or they're going to sing over us. I just want everybody just kind of honestly just to stay seated. Close your eyes, bow your head, open your hands, whatever you want to do. And they're just going to sing the song, It Is Well, With My Soul. In this moment, if you're going through something, I just want you to spend a little bit of time having this song sung over you, knowing that your pain is real and your pain is there. And God is real and God is there. Just allowing the moment and processing the loss as we sing, God, it is well, it is well with my soul.